Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Where did all the sellers go? What happened to everybody who was worried about that trade war or surging inflation, especially the price of oil, or rising treasury yields? They all seem to disappear on days like today, where the Dow gained 127 points, SME advanced 0.28%, NASDAQ tacked on 0.31%, and it took us to levels not seen since the epic meltdown at the end of January. Despite all the talking heads who tell you the sky is falling, and boy, aren't there a lot of them, this market simply refuses to quit, and I'll tell you why. This bull market has two main drivers. We'll talk about them tonight. First, we've spent decades being told one thing, to invest in index funds. People don't do much individual stock picking anymore. Sure, there will always be buyers of iconic stocks, like Apple, Alphabet, Amazon. Berkshire Hathaway's on that list, too. There'll be takers and tech winners and drugs, some love for retailers, maybe some ETFs. But the game has changed since I first started picking stocks almost 40 years ago. We didn't even have index funds back then. Now they're the preferred way to invest for the majority of people who want to own stocks. Why does that matter? Because it changes the character of the market. Look, it's been a long time since we've had a really horrendous and prolonged sell-off. We've been in bull market mode now for ages. That makes people feel more comfortable putting money to work in index funds because it makes stocks feel safe and consistent. A nice place to invest. The other piece, it's not just that people are comfortable investing in stocks. They can also afford to invest in stocks. The strong labor market has allowed more families to save. You know what? We got a great report last week from St. Louis Fed. It's really kind of interesting. I love the work that they do. And it showed us household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable personal income. Will you look at this? Look at this. Okay, you know, there's the Great Recession. It tells you that the American people have gotten a lot more frugal. That's what this is. This is about frugality. We're borrowing less money because we're spending less relative to what we make. The flip side of this exact chart is that the economy's picked up and we've therefore seen a huge increase in the personal savings rate. It's the inverse. So now let's put this mosaic together. You got many more people working. And on average, these people are saving a larger percentage of their paychecks. So where do they put their money? A lot of it goes into index funds. The cheaper, safer way to invest in stocks, less single stock risk that appeals to this newly frugal attitude. Plus, there's been a headlong rush by institutions to lower fees for index investing. You know, just last week, Fidelity introduced two index funds without any fees at all. Did you see that? And that's a catalyst for even more money coming into the indices, often underrated because I think a lot of the rich people on Wall Street don't think about minuscule fees and then getting rid of them. It does matter to people. And this flood of index fund money, it translates into mindless buying of the whole S&P 500 or whatever index people happen to be investing in. It's like we've got a horde of automatic buyers. <laughs> now, I said there were two things pushing this market higher. So what's the second one? Buybacks. 
Goldman Sachs just published a prescient note titled the wrong trillion dollar question, where they argue that we should stop focusing so much on Apple's newfound trillion dollar valuation and instead think about the trillion dollars worth of buybacks that have been announced this year. That's right. A 46% increase versus last year. Isn't that staggering? Oh, and as Goldman points out, and I quote, August is the most popular month for buybacks, accounting for 13% of annual totals. Now, as someone who's personally authorized and executed buybacks myself, I can tell you that they have the potential to give stocks a serious boost. Some of these buybacks are gigantic, like Apple. They repurchased $20 billion in stock last quarter, picking up stock on pretty much every dip. Others are more episodic. Still, consider what's happening here. You've got a wave of index fund buying from individual savers. Then on top of that, there's a wave of corporate buybacks, basically creating a floor that lifts underneath at each level that the index funds take it to, just in case real sellers come out in force. The impact of these two trends, simple. They've created a stock shortage. I'm going to say it again because it's so outlandish. A stock shortage of epic proportions. There just aren't enough shares of big cap companies to go around until sellers materialize. And maybe we have to go higher levels, maybe considerably higher levels, to find trillions of dollars worth. Not only that, but because the market seems chronically overvalued to most professional money managers, they're typically willing to provide some stock to save these aggressive index buyers. But then these same managers are often afraid to offer too much stock because then they won't have enough on their books to beat their own benchmark, which tends to be, yes, the S&P 500. They're scared to sell because if they miss a move, their clients might abandon them. Sure, some of them are good enough at individual stock picking so that they have nothing to fear. But most aren't that good, which means they feel compelled to stay as long as possible whenever the market's in good shape. When the averages are roaring, if you, you look like a total idiot if you're sitting on the sidelines. Or worse, shorting the market and looking like an idiot. Well, that's just career suicide in the hedge fund business, as I know, because I used to be in it. Now, consider the specifics of today's rally, because it's pretty typical of the way these moves work. All right. First, the financials want to zoom whenever interest rates go higher. It's practically by rote and it doesn't distinguish between individual stocks. Well, because, well, again, buying is concentrated in ETFs. This time they link all financial institutions. So all the banks go higher since they're all expected to have better earnings when interest rates go up. Second, oil's up. And that's viewed as a proxy for strength in the economy. It's actually a deeply flawed barometer. But when crude goes higher, money managers therefore assume that means we've got clear economic skies ahead. Third, there are individual stocks that hearten the bulls and bring even more money into the market. Today, we got a piece of research that showed Amazon's killing it when it comes to ad revenues. We think about it as a retailer. We think about it as web services. But how about ad revenues? We got another report that said that Alphabet's self-driving division, Waymo, could be worth $175 billion. Two of the fangs always get the juices going. Uh, we got some good news in the industrials, too, as Kramer fave Emerson reported a fabulous beat and raise, a nice counterpoint to all of the fears about Chinese tariffs, something that ignited all of the China-oriented industrials, including Caterpillar and Boeing. Then we got a quizzical set of tweets from Elon Musk about taking Tesla private. Look, I have no idea what this guy's doing, all right? Tweeting about something so important, uh, but then again, our president uses it for distribution. Why not Musk? 
What you need to know is that you've got tons of bears in there constantly betting against this market and individual stocks that they consider overvalued. Tesla being exhibit A of overvaluation. If Tesla's going private, hence the $37.58 gain today, who knows what other stocks could do that that also rip the lungs out of the shorts. Oh, and let's uh, take a note of a prelude to tomorrow's business, please. The stock of Disney. Because CEO Bob Iger talked about early success with ESPN+. Plus, As I said he would on this show, it's over-the-top initiative that's gaining traction and changing the narrative positively until Disney can close on its buy of some key Fox assets. The company reported what looked to be a weak number, and the stock went down. But this one always trades on the conference call, and it was stellar. Bottom line, if you only take one thing away from this segment, maybe for the whole night, understand that we got a serious stock shortage on our hands at these levels. There just aren't enough shares to go around, at least at the prices that we are trading at now. And it's making even bearish money managers afraid to sell. At the end of the day, the stock market is a market like any other, which means it's controlled by supply and demand. When there's not enough supply, prices go higher. End of story. James in California. James. Hey, Jim. Yo, yo. What are your thoughts on Grand Canyon Education, given their recent transition to a management company since they sold the school to a newly formed nonprofit, GCU, their amazing growth history and their ability to provide services to other schools now? Well, you know, I'm not a fan of this group. I don't particularly follow Lope. I, I do feel that what's happened here is that you've got a stock that is, you know, it's up 32 percent. It, it's just not my, you know, it, it's not my cup of tea. I, I, I will do more homework on it, but I have avoided that group studiously. Uh, I know it's a kind of a political thing at this point, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I haven't focused on it enough. Let's go to Russell in Alabama. Russell. War Eagle, Jim. Finance Rock. With a tremendous amount of speculation, with a tremendous amount of speculation surrounding Tesla and its stock price trading at 158 times forward earnings, is it time for investors to wake up and get out, or weather the storms of Musk's latest acquisition of taking the company private at at $420 a share? Further, what does this mean for the perspective? private equity groups and creditors that would step in. Okay. Um, first of all, I got my Eagles wrong. That's War Eagles. Uh, congratulations, Tim Cook, War Eagles. Now, look, it's interesting. I followed both the bond market and the stock market. You know that the uh, bonds actually went up on this news, which indicates that there are real buyers. There are people who want to buy. Uh, they want to they, they, they buy Tesla up here, the stock. And I, I said when this last quarter was reported that the, now it's in the bull's court just because the company is doing better than we thought. So my take is, do you need to sell it? I don't even know. Look, if you own it to this point, just go to its logical conclusion and see what happens. Because, uh, like I said, just like when I go to see David Blaine, man, magic's exciting. All right. There's always some kind of negative news flow out there, but I don't see it shaking the confidence of the bulls anytime soon. Well, man, buddy, tonight I'll reveal Apple's largest Achilles heel and uh, tell you how it could impact your portfolio. Then Logitech is up almost 250% over the last three years. Could surging demand for gaming gear, thanks to the esports frenzy, continue to push it higher? I got the CEO. And you may think Amazon is the only winner in the e-commerce space. Wait, I'll tell you how the charts are pointing to some new winners and some losers on the horizon. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. 
Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps. Boycott! That's all I could think when I read today's editorial in the People's Daily, an organ of the Chinese Communist Party, a story that was entitled, Strong Sales of U.S. Brands, Including Apple, Give China Bargaining Chips in Trade Row. Ever since the White House started cracking down on China's unfair trade practices, including everything from dumping steel to stealing intellectual property, you know what my biggest fear has been? Oh, not tariffs on American goods. No, China exports five times as much stuff to us as we do to them. They're never going to win on tariffs alone. No, what worries me are boycotts. The idea that American companies that do lots of business in China, from KFC to Starbucks to Apple, could be hurt by subtle government-organized boycotts that would steer business to their Chinese competitors. That's the smart way for China to retaliate against our tariffs. So far, the Chinese government hasn't resorted to this tactic, at least not that we know of, even as Starbucks and Yum China have experienced very weak sales of late. But our biggest vulnerability is, of course, Apple because Apple gets so much of its growth from China. Now, I've always said it would be self-destructive for the Communist Party to go after Apple, since they do so much of their manufacturing in the People's Republic. If Apple needs to cut back on production, a lot of Chinese people could lose their jobs. But perversely, that means cracking down on Apple is a great way for the Communist Party to show us that they're serious. Sure enough, this article sets the table for exactly the kind of boycott I've been worried about. The language is incredibly blunt. I quote, the eye-catching success achieved in the Chinese market may provoke nationalist sentiment if U.S. President Donald Trump recently adopted protectionist measures hit Chinese companies hard, end quote. The saber-rattling continues. I really didn't like this quote. China is by far the most important overseas market for the U.S.-based Apple, leaving it exposed if Chinese people make it a target of anger and nationalist sentiment. Doesn't that sound like a call for a boycott? did to me. And then there's a twist. The article points out that Apple employs a huge number of people in China, and it offers a tonic. If Apple wants to continue raking in enormous profits from the Chinese markets amid trade tensions, the company needs to do more to the economic, to share the economic cake with local Chinese people, end quote. Am I crazy, or does that sound like kind of a shakedown? The Communist Party is basically saying, Nice business you got here. Hate to see anything happen to it. Of course, this is the first we've heard that Apple isn't doing enough for its Chinese workers, as they're actually one of the most generous employers in the PRC. So clearly, the piece isn't about workers' pay. It's about sending a message to President Trump that the Chinese government will start stir up anti-Apple feeling, causing sales to drop, bringing down the stock of the only American company to ever reach a trillion-dollar valuation. From the beginning, I have felt that if push comes to shove, the Chinese would only go there. 
When President Trump's aides speak privately about how American industry is going to have to accept some short-term pain before our nation reaps the long-term gain, well, guess what? This is exactly the kind of, the house of pain. that they're talking about. Starbucks recently teamed up with Alibaba to deliver coffee, something that may have immunized them against a potential boycott. I'm not sure what Yum China can do if the government decides they need to take a great leap backward. And I don't see much of an answer to an Apple boycott. In fact, I'd argue it's the Achilles heel for Apple. Hence today's $1.96 decline on a really up day. That's a little less than 1%. So I think it is time for the president to set clear, emphatic goals about what he wants out of this trade war. And it can't be unconditional surrender. We're not going to get that. The Chinese Communist Party is obsessed with what they call the century of humiliation, the period from the opium wars to the communist revolution, where China was forced to accept all sorts of unequal treaties with the West. That's why the Chinese leadership would rather wreck their own economy than be seen giving it to Washington. Look, I'm glad President Trump is standing up to China to put a stop to their unfair trade practices. But as someone who believes that Apple's been a model Chinese citizen, it's a real shame that this great company is becoming a bargaining chip in the trade war. So maybe it's time for the moment to stop the saber rattling, hold off more tariffs like the ones we just learned tonight that will be placed on 16 billion of Chinese goods on August 23rd, and maybe start trying to achieve victory through negotiation. We can keep punishing China with tariffs, but the only way we actually win this is by making a deal, not by a siege that causes everyone, including Apple shareholders, to lose. Let's go to Will in North Carolina. Will! Booyah! Booyah, Jim. Holy Thanks cow. for uh, all that you do. You're my second favorite, Jim, uh, after Jimmy Garoppolo. Go Niners. I'm calling today about IQ, Netflix of China. I was just wondering your thoughts. I am not a fan. I have said that I'm not a fan. Uh, I've got to tell you, I'm getting more and more concerned with even my two favorites, which are Baidu and Alibaba, although Alibaba, I think, is the best bet. And I like the Niners here. Maybe they shake up that Western division. You know that? Let's go to Amir in California. Amir. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Not bad. How about you, Amir? Excellent. Not too bad, not too bad. I just want to know what you think. I've been holding on stocks for the last 10 years. I made some awesome gains. I want to go all in on GE, sell my games. No, I don't want you to go all in because we don't know what the ultimate GE is going to look like. I do did some analysis this morning, back of the envelope analysis on the healthcare division, and I think that you'd be surprised how much it looks like Timo, uh, Thermo uh, Fisher. I wish they had the capital to buy that company we had on last night, Perkin Elmer. I don't know if you caught that, but geez, that's just smoking red hot security. Yes, the Chinese haven't played fair. They haven't. But if we want progress, it's time maybe to lighten up on the rhetoric and realize that victory is possible through negotiation. Much more made money at. Feel like Amazon is a monopoly in e-commerce? Think again. I'm going off the charts to see which big box retailers can be taking share on the digital side and which might not be. Then, it's a surprising growth theme that has accelerated in recent weeks, and you may have missed it. I'll reveal the group. And all your calls are rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. 
In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. In 1982, a mouse was born, and a revolution began. Logitech changed the game by tapping into what millennials crave, building technology to work better, play faster, and stay connected. Can this pioneer continue to shape the industry? Some stocks are so strong that when you get even a wee small pullback, you need to be ready to pounce. Take Logitech International, L-O-G-I, for all you home gamers. A few years ago, this company seemed like, I don't know, maybe a relic, a boring tangential play on the declining PC business. Logitech makes computer peripherals like keyboards and mice, along with headphones and mobile speakers, video conferencing gear, tablet accessories, remote controls, all kinds of expensive high-end gaming equipment. In 2015, or the first half of 2016, none of that stuff really sounded like a growth business. But now this whole story looks like very, very different. Thanks to the resurgence of the personal computer, and perhaps more important, the extreme popularity of gaming. Remember, there are people who pay money to go to an arena, we're going to talk about this, and watch esports, meaning competitive video games. That's why the stock has given us a 90% gain since we brought CEO Bracken Darrell on the show in November of 2016 when he was most impressive, and it just keeps going. Look, the company keeps putting up these excellent numbers. Logitech reported yet another beaten race quarter at the end of July, yet the stock actually sold off a couple of bucks in the news from 46 to 43. A little over a week later, it's back to 45 and change. The stock's up huge for the year. I bet that it's got more room to run, though. Don't take for me. Let's check in with Bracken Darrell, the president and CEO of Logitech International. Find out more about the quarter and where his company is headed. Bracken, welcome back to Mad Money, partner. Hey, great to yeah, see you again. Can't help but call you that because I'll tell you, you were the one who first told me about e-gaming. I had no idea. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we have a lot of news today about Elon Musk. Uh, and sure. he's talking about whether being private might be better. Uh-huh. You start your conference call the following way. In 2012, <laughs> there were a lot of people who told me you need to go private to do what you need to do. But uh, didn't, didn't need to do that in order to change ourselves. I may change that because I love being a public company. Wait a second. He just said that he hates being a public company. Why, you love it? Well, Elon Musk is in a completely different situation than we were in. But what I love about being in a public company is I like the forced rigor of the short term because I'm a very long-term person that right. keeps the heartbeat going fast, and that's what you need. Well, i got to tell you, uh, the late, great Andy Grove felt the same way. He said that's it's a terrific way to measure, uh, not necessarily long-term, but short-term. You need it to stay in the game. Absolutely. Okay, now. Uh, gaming, you say, is a rare, this is a great conference call, by the way, rare long-term secular generational change. You went to Barclays Center. You saw the sell at 22000 Unbelievable. You were comparing it. I'm gonna, I don't want to steal your thunder. Yeah. NBA. Yep. NFL. Yeah. Soccer. Give us this evolution. Oh, you know, well, I'll start with me, with me and you. You know, in 1965, I remember, you know, 1968, 1969, I remember the NFL and the Super Bowl, how big it seemed then. Looking back on it, it was tiny in, in the fan base then. And I think that's exactly where we are now in gaming. It's just taken off. You know, it really started, it, it started in earnest, you know, six or seven years ago. And the, the growth curve has just been like this. You know, we, we have one business, our Astro headsets. They've tripled. Tripled year yep. over year. We bought them a year ago. Now so, three but times put it so the people understand oh, yeah. what we're talking about. Oh yeah, this is about. the Astro headset. I mean, this is one of them. 
is the A40. It sells right. for $149. But you know, it's just it's just an amazing period, and I think we're uh, we're certainly not at the anywhere near the end of the beginning. I mean, this is the this is the early stage. You have the prediction in here that it's going to be an Olympic game. Yeah, we were involved in a uh, in a meeting in Lausanne with the International Olympic Committee. And there was a discussion around how and when it when should come into the Olympics. This was about two weeks ago. And, you know, I, th I think it's inevitable. I think it will be part of the Olympics. I also, I'll make another prediction. Which okay. Will be, it'll be hard to hold me to unless you have me on the show in 10 years or 20 years. But I think it'll be the biggest sport in the world. Oh, come on. It will. It will. You're talking your I, book. I'll draw you a picture. Uh, I, I can't do it in the air. But I'll draw you a picture next time I'm on here. And I'll show you why I think it's going to be the biggest sport in the world. And, 15, 20, 30 years. Did you like this uh, when you were at the Barclays? For the uh, it was amazing. It was really amazing. You, you know, your was, guy, your guy, one of your guys did well? Uh, yeah, actually our team won. We sponsored one team. I think both teams were using our wireless mice. But, but I was looking down at the, at the, from, the, from up above because I had a seat up above. And I was looking down. And one of the amazing things was it's just like being in an, an NBA game. And I looked down. Not a single person's on their phone. Zero. It's a no multitaskers are actually engaged. Yeah, believe it. Younger or not. people engaged. <laughs> Remarkable. All right, now, but you also make the point you are not abandoning your core business. No, we and love it. And if anything, you're continuing to innovate. Love it. Absolutely love it. You know, we're, and you, you can see across here, our core business keeps expanding too. You know, we're we're not only in keyboards, of course, for 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 tablets. So this is a really cool right. little tablet keyboard. We're in keyboards for gaming. Webcams are growing again because people who are streaming themselves on Twitch playing games or video blogging need a better webcam. So those are growing again. About? Yeah, they're growing double digit again. This is a, one of our newest businesses, the true wireless earphones. Hey, Chief, easy. I wear them. That's what I work out with. All right. I didn't awesome. know they were yours. They're Jaybirds. That's right. Yeah, I didn't know they were right. yours. I just bought them. I said, these look good. They're that's fabulous. Awesome. They are. They are. They're really amazing. Huh? <laughs> and and this, course, this, come on, talk this. Oh, because this is super exciting. We just announced, it's not yet closed yet, but it will. We're, we're buying a company called Blue. They make microphones. They're the primary player in the microphone business. You use a microphone. They started as a professional microphone player for people on stage, but, but they moved, and now people are video blogging or they're playing game. They need a very high-quality microphone. These are the best. All right, one last question, Bracken. I was with some kids this weekend. Uh, they want, uh, they can't play football. They're too small, basketball too small, yeah. tennis not good enough, baseball not good enough. They keep saying, these kids are 12, we're going to get scholarships, NCAA scholarships to go to the schools of our choice. They're gamers. Yeah. True? Yeah. UC Irvine's already doing scholarships. Scholarships are starting to spread across the university system. My brother's a, a college president at Kentucky Wesleyan College. He is a small liberal arts college. They're putting in gaming as, an, as, a, as, a, as not a varsity sport yet, but a club sport. It's coming everywhere. Well, you were a visionary. You told us about it. I have to admit, I was, I was skeptical, but I was wrong. You weren't so skeptical. You've always been a fan. <laughs> okay. Give me too much credit. <laughs> it's all right. I, but you, were the pl you proselytized it. I bought in. That's Logitech President and CEO Bracken Darrell. Stock's up more than 30% for the year. And you know what? It's so clearly not dumb. You look at this stuff. And yes, I do like these because they fit in my little bag. May have money back after the break. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. It sticks it to the man. What? It does? It sticks that's, it to the man. That's the first thing I think of when I think of Etsy. They're just <laughs> sticking it to the man every day. He agrees with me. He agrees with me. Thank you. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. We've all been conditioned to believe that e-commerce is a lot like the movie Highlander. In the end, there can only be one winner. 
And obviously that winner is going to be Amazon. Or at least that's the theory. The truth, though, is a little more complicated. In reality, online shopping is still a rapidly growing category with room for more than one player. We know this because lately many of the big box stores have gotten aggressive about expanding their digital presence and their brick-and-mortar locations actually give them an advantage. People love BOPUS. That's buy online, pick up in store. Hey, why do you think Amazon wanted Whole Foods? Because when it comes to all sorts of perishable goods, the name of the game here is multi-channel. By the same token, every big box store has the potential to be an online distribution center. So which old school retailers have the potential to really start taking share and taking names on the digital side? Tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Tim Collins. He's a brilliant technician. He's my colleague at RealMoney.com. To dig deeper into a pair of big box chains that have made some major internet investments. Two household names, people, Walmart and Target. They're different. Let's start with the daily chart of Walmart, okay? Because Collins thinks this chart is signaling that this company has stepped back into the ring, made itself a viable Amazon contender. Now, Walmart's had a rough time earlier this year. In late February, okay, which is right about here, uh, it was trading at 103 when it gapped below 100, quickly fell to the 80s. Wow. Okay, and since then, it's pretty much where it stayed. But based on what he sees in this chart, Collins believes that Walmart could be poised to return to $100 before the end of the year, which would be a nice move from this $89 and change stock. So what exactly does he like here? First of all, Walmart's made a very large rounding bottom over the past five months. You've also got a clear double bottom. Right here, when the first low made in the week of May 7th and then the second low in the week of May 29th. Then about six weeks ago, the stock started finally marching higher, making its way from the low 80s to just under 90s of today. Basically, what Collins sees here is a pattern within a pattern. This is similar to the formation he pointed out to us with Allergan, AGN, when he checked in with him just a, a month ago. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to see what he's thinking. And since then, even though I was skeptical of the fundamentals, Allergan's rallied, boom, quick 10 bucks. What do I mean about a pattern within a pattern? Okay, Walmart's got a bullish channel where the stock trends higher with a tight range. But since the beginning of July, there's a second bullish channel inside the first one, with the stock moving up inside an even tighter range. This gives us not one, but two floors of support. One at 87, okay, and then one back at, uh, in the other at 88. And even if we get a big downdraft, you got a third floor at 82 bucks, the level where Walmart made its double bottom in May. According to Collins, this is a great way to define your risk. Very important concept for technical traders. If the stock goes below 87, roughly three bucks down from where it is, uh, he'd become more cautious. If it breaks down below 82, he'd tell you to abandon the bull thesis and simply cut your losses. Remember, that's how technicians work. They're all about identifying trends, not finding cheap stocks. So when a trend Daylight breaks down. They admit they got it wrong, and they move on to greener pastures. More importantly, Collins thinks that Walmart is only one step away from a Pamplona-style running of the bulls. In fact, just today, the stock broke out above the ceiling resistance at the top of the channel. The next major hurdle? The breakdown level from February and the stock's 200-day moving average are both sitting at around $90.50, up just 73 cents from where it's currently trading. If Walmart can close above that level, Collins says we'll be off to the races. From $90.50, he's betting it'll be smooth sailing all the way up to 103 bucks as it fills in the gap from the big late February decline. That'd be monumental. What else? Okay, check out this tool down here. All right, This is at the bottom of the chart. It's called the Shanday Trend Meter. You first introduced this to us when we were talking about allergy. Uh, this is a momentum gauge that distills a bunch of different indicators. It's kind of a melange. You got the Bollinger Bands, the Relative Strength Index, price channels, price changes, standard deviation from across six 
diff, uh, time frames and distills them into a single numerical score. The Shandai trend meter is making a new high here, hitting levels we haven't seen since Walmart was trading in the triple digits. That's a very bullish sign. Put it all together, and Collins is confident that this stock is ready to roar. Hey, man, this is a big cap stock. It also helped the Dow, by the way, if it happens. All right, how about Target? Check out the weekly chart. Target just made a new 52-week high today, and it's a few bucks away from its all-time highs. Brian Cornell doing quite a good job here, by the way. However, Collins thinks this stock is starting to look extended, maybe overextended. The full stochastic oscillator? is in extremely overbought territory, which often means that a stock has come up too far too fast and is due for a pullback. Collins says the stock could get a bit of a boost if it breaks out above the ceiling of resistance at 82.50, up just 26 cents from where it's currently trading. But he doesn't like the risk reward at the, at the moment. And that's why Collins recommends swapping out a Target and swapping in a Walmart, which has a lot more room to play catch-up. Oh, and, and while we're talking about big box stores, let's not forget about Kramer fave Costco. Here's a stock that has been absolutely on fire. Back in February of 2016, we told you to buy Costco off the recommendation of Larry Williams. He's that legendary technician who's got a host of different indicators named after him, not to mention nearly a dozen books and his own website. Uh, The website's coolly named IReallyTrade.com. At the time, it was at $162.00. And now it's at 223. Hey, nice 38% gain in less than two years, okay? But I bring this up, and let's take a look at the Costco chart. I bring it up because it says it's time to declare victory in Costco and ring the register. It's a shocking position to me. Why? Because Costco stock has a strong correlation with the strength of the dollar. Now, this may seem completely crazy. Remember here, the dollar index forecast? key access and forecast. Uh, they do import a ton of stuff from overseas, so a strong dollar makes them more profitable. This was a big reason why Williams recommended Costco two years ago. So take a look at this chart, which shows the action in Costco in black, and then the red line represents the linkage between Costco and the dollar index, which Williams then projects out an additional three months. So in other words, this is Williams's work, all right? This is not the actual chart. It's a prediction. William predicts a downturn in the dollar, and he thinks that will translate into a downturn in Costco stock. What else? All right, check out this next chart. It's kind of interesting. Uh, This is the Williams Cot indicator. Williams Cot. It's not like Mattress Firm. Okay, it's a cot. Uh, And this is commitment to traders. Here's the thing. This is a tool that helps figure out whether big institutions are buying or selling. After a monster run in Costco stock, the Williams Cot has come down hard. Look at this. You would expect that to be going higher. That's indicating that the big boys right now are selling into this. That's one more reason to believe that the stock could be primed for a bit of a sell-off here. I was shocked when I saw this because I am so used to seeing that indicating that. Well, William says it's time to ring the register because he thinks that's exactly what's going to happen. My view, look, I love Costco's membership-based model. I, I go there all the time, but nobody ever got hurt taking a profit. The bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Tim Collins and Larry Williams suggest that you might want to sell some Costco and Target here. They've run a lot, and they both might be due for a pullback. But Walmart, on the other hand, is looking mighty attractive and could be the next retailer to explode higher. More mad money after the break. It is time. Some of the night real comments about Ralph goes one out of the 
Right now, the light round's over. Are you ready? Skate down. It's over the light round. Here's someone to start. Fred in New York. Fred. Yeah. Yo, hey, yo. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I'm a first-time caller. This is Fred from Long Island. Great to have there's no reference to uh, Elon Musk's 420, but I wanted to know about Canopy Growth Corporation, CGC. Well, that's an uh, interesting uh, analogy there. Okay, here's the problem. Stock went up because of the uh, Canadian vote, okay? Then the Canadian vote happens, and then there's no more catalyst. Now, it's a siege. Do we see what kind of beverages are going to be offered, what kind of different candies, what kind of food? And when we get chewing gum, and when we get that, then that stock will be moving again. Let's go to Richard in Florida. Richard! Hi, Jim. Thank yo, you for yo. taking my call. Greetings from Miami. Nice. What's up? Hi, uh, my stock reported earnings last week. Uh, great top line revenue, but didn't do so well on the earnings. What's your long term and short term take on GPT communications? I saw that. I mean, geez, you know, I, I know that it was considered to be a miss. You know, I think that that's a very inexpensive stock that is doing quite well. I think it might be an opportunity, but I got to see it calm down. It is just too. I mean, it's kind of like a free fall right now. Let's wait a bit. Maybe have him back on the show. Let's go to Jose in California. Jose! Hey, Jim. Booyah to you. Booyah. It looks like you got quite the green thumb, too. Your garden looks great. Ah, it's not as good. My tan garden's better than my, uh, my Long Island garden, but thank you for saying that. What's going on? Okay, I want to get your take on the stock Vivint Solar, VSLR. Now, they just reported, but I'm going to make this observation, okay? As I was talking, I was talking to someone from the Philadelphia Eagles who was saying to me, hey, you have any uh, solar stocks? you have any environmental stocks? I said, whoa! If we're raising this, if we're cutting the standards in terms of how much gasoline that you use per car, the cafe standards, I don't want to be in any stock that's levered to solar. How about we go to Chuck in Colorado, please, Chuck? Hey, Jim, a big Rocky Mountain booyah to you. Right back at you where my daughter is right now. I'm very excited for her. What's going on? Hey, uh, this company is splitting out uh, their lithium business. Buy, sell, or hold FMC. It's had a nice pullback. I think it's absolutely terrific. You get two for one. You got crop protection. And, yeah, I mean, crop. And you've got the lithium. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. All right, what the heck is going on with these hospital stocks? Not too long ago, this group seemed to be pretty sleepy at best. Everyone figured that the environment was against them. You had the Trump administration attempts to dismantle Obamacare piece by piece. You had a wave of proposed mergers like CVS combining with Aetna that looked like they'd give other players in the healthcare food chain more bargaining power versus the hospitals. And of course, there's a possibility that this new healthcare joint venture from Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan might be able to turn the industry upside down. Hey, look. Hats off to those three. They're all pretty good, huh? But in spite of these worries, the hospital stocks, they've caught fire of late. The whole group is absolutely in fuego. At least it, it was until today when Tenet Healthcare imploded. But you know what? That was company specific. Wall Street doesn't like how Tenet handled the sale of its software and debt collection subsidiary, which is why the stock plunged 16%. Yet, if anything, Tenet is the exception that proves that we'll get this. Because while this major hospital stock got obliterated today, true that most of this group still managed to rally? And you know what? Even after this decline, Tenet's shares have still more than doubled this year to date. I mean, this thing's been on. Tenet's been incredible. 
Which brings us back to the central question. What in the world is driving this incredible move in the hospital stocks? Two weeks ago, we learned that LifePoint, one of the weaker players in the group, frankly, is being taken private by a very smart guy, Apollo, for big premium. Clearly, the hospital space is sexier than most of us thought. So to understand what's happening here, let's zero in on the largest player in the space, HCA Healthcare. Why? Because I think it's the best example and the best stock in a red-hot group. For those of you who aren't familiar with this one, HCA owns 178 hospitals, 120 freestanding surgery centers located across 20 states, with a few of them in the United Kingdom. Now, HCA has an interesting trajectory. After a period of underperformance, things began to pick up last November. Then HCA really broke out a couple of weeks ago after the company reported a massively better than expected quarter, and the stock shot up 9% in a single session before gaining another 10% since then. In fact, HCA just set a new all-time high this very day at 131 before pulling back into the close. So what's driving this monster move? Okay, before I get into the numbers, I need to tip my invisible cap to Peter Costa of Wells Fargo, who resumed coverage of HCA back in January with an outperform rating when many other analysts were skeptical. Costa's been dead right. Sometimes, you know, I'm too critical of analysts. When a guy's been right, I got to come on this show and I got to say good things. I'm saying good things about Costa right here. Let me give you a thesis. First, Costa argued that HCA has turned itself into the, the best of breed hospital chain, really differentiating itself from the competition by focusing on making itself the top healthcare provider in a number of rapidly expanding cities. That means when the insurance companies at HMOs try to strong arm them, HCA can negotiate from a position of strength. Plus, it's hard for new competitors to come in because building something as big as a hospital in a major American city is a regulatory nightmare. He liked that HCA has gotten out ahead of the peers when it comes to embracing big data and generally going digital. At the same time, Costa pointed out that the company's strong balance sheet gives it a lot of flexibility, and he pointed out the stock was darn cheap. I remember when it went private, it had the worst balance sheet. What a reformation. Not long after Costa came out with this incredibly bullish piece, HCA reported a robust quarter. But more importantly, management's full-year earnings forecast was much, much, much higher than Wall Street was looking for. Analysts were expecting $7.52 per share for 2018. HCA told us it could make eight fifty to 9 uh, It was an insane number. Yet quizzically, the stock only rallied 4% as HCA reported on the same day that we found out about that big healthcare joint venture from Amazon Berkshire and J.P. Morgan. Timing is everything. Fast forward to May 1st. HCA delivers another great quarter, a substantial top and bottom line beat. The source of their strength? While same facility admission rates were up 2% overall, pretty much what management had been forecasting. What's known as the intensity of service key metric for hospitals increased by 4.4%. This would be kind of like if a retailer gave you a modest increase in traffic, but a big, big boost in same-store sales because those customers are buying more expensive items. However, the stock barely budged again on the news because management really maintained their guidance. It was a simple beat, not a beat and raise. You know we need beat and raises around here to have a stock go higher. The real game changer, though, two weeks ago. Don't ever say this market doesn't give you a chance to buy. HCA reported still one more top and bottom line beat, but this time they raised their forecast and raised it substantially. Remember, management had already given incredibly bullish guidance in January. So they raised already elevated numbers, increasing the revenue forecast by an astounding $500 million, taking up the earnings forecast from the $850 to $9 range to the $9 to $940 range. It was stunning. 
which is why the stock shot up into the stratosphere of the news. Once again, they gave you a big intensity of service number up 4.1%. On top of that, the company also had its best volume in more than two years. The same facility admissions up 2.7%. That's a major acceleration versus the previous quarter. This is not what was supposed to happen. Most experts were worried the volume would slow down thanks to the expansion of competing urgent care facilities across the country. Look, you've seen them open up in every block, right? Uh-uh. Didn't matter. What's really driving HCA's outperformance? I think it's a combination of factors. you got an improving economy that makes patients feel more comfortable about going to the hospital when they get hurt. And at the same time, HCA's got a terrific geographic footprint in many fast-growing cities, as I mentioned, especially down south where the economy is. Come on. It's just booming down there. The best part, even after this incredible run, HCA remains pretty cheap. It's trading at just 13 times next year's earnings estimates. And it's still got that fabulous balance sheet. You know what? It's a buy right here. When? How about tomorrow? Now, the rest of the industry, you got Encompass Health, a company formerly known as HealthSouth. It runs a major network of 128 hospitals, 272 home health and hospice locations. 2014, they acquired Encompass, which gave them a much larger nationwide footprint. And earlier this year, they changed the name to reflect the new reality. Just like HCA, Encompass has delivered a series of excellent quarters, including some blowout numbers late last month. Just like HCA, it's got a strong balance sheet. Unlike HCA, though, it's a heck of a lot more expensive, selling for 21 times next year's earnings. That's a, an above-market multiple, despite having a similar growth rate. I think Encompass is a good stock, but wait a second. HCA is much more attractive. Next up is this tenant that I mentioned earlier. It's a complicated story. After years of underperformance, a group of activist investors, led by Larry Robbins of Glenview Capital, ousted the company's CEO last summer and brought in a replacement of their own choosing. Since then, Tenet has gotten aggressive about unlocking value. They're cutting costs. They're trying to sell Conifer Health Solutions. That's a service provider business that helps other health care providers improve their operations. And they put up some good numbers. Stocks had a ludicrous run, more than doubling since the beginning of the year. But this story has now become complicated. Last night, Tenet reported another massive earnings beat with raised guidance. Nobody cared. Why? Well, there was a small revenue shortfall, and investors want the company to hurry up with those asset sales. I think, I think a lot of today's 16% decline was simply about profit-taking. But you know what? This one's too risky for me. So let me give you the bottom line, and this is an action-oriented bottom line. Wall Street clearly got too negative on the hospital stocks earlier this year. Lately, we've been seeing some great numbers from the group. But judging by the way Tenant imploded today, you need to stay selective, which is why I want you to stick with best of breed HCA Healthcare. If you want exposure to the healthcare sector, this one is a must own. Stick with Kramer. Look, we're all puzzling over the Tesla situation because obviously if there's no real intent to be able to do some sort of take private, then what he just did, Elon Musk did, is that we think he did a pump and dump. But you see, if he didn't dump, it doesn't matter. Hey, I like to say there's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.